Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. We've got LeBron James and A Rod in the same show. And whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 13 of The Bridge. Well, happy Father's Day, everyone, and a happy June 21st, 2015 to all those who may not be fathers. I had a pretty great Father's Day today, if I do say so myself. One of the staples in my relationship with my father has always been the game of baseball and the New York Yankees, and we had the opportunity to see some former Yankees greats at the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre Rail Riders Legends game. The Real Yankees have their old-timers day on Saturday, and this is a new tradition that the AAA club has started having their own form of a Legends game the day afterward. So we got to see some old great Yankee players such as Reggie Jackson, Don Larson was in appearance, got to meet some guys too. I brought my father into the world of autographing. We actually had very good seats for this game. We were in the second row behind the dugout of the quote-unquote away team. So there was a lot of great players that we saw coming out, coming in. And he thought maybe we could just get away with sitting in the second row, toss somebody a baseball, they might sign it. Maybe if we reach over the rail or whatever we might do, we have long arms, we're tall guys, maybe that'll work. And I said, oh no. No, no. There is a method to the madness if you want to do this right. So we went down near the dugout, happened to get Gene Michael, the former great player and GM of the New York Yankees. I went to the gift shop before this all started because I didn't have anything with me to get signed besides my Yankees hat or my Derek Jeter jersey, but I don't want a lot of people touching those things. Plus, things get hot, you sweat a little bit, those autographs are going to run if you get your hat signed, so I don't want any part of that. So I checked out the gift shop, see if they can give me anything worthwhile to sign, and I found a baseball that had a nice Yankees Legends graphic on it. You know what? They had me pay for that baseball. 20 US dollars. And maybe that ball is now worth $20 based on the signatures that I have on it. But where are you going with that? $5 to park, $11.50 for chicken tenders and a red Gatorade. Jesus, what am I, a millionaire? Anyway, so I got Gene Michael. He, of course, signed the sweet spot of the ball. He was the first signature I got. Gene Stick Michael. Thanks, Gene. You know, I really didn't need you on the sweet spot, but that's okay. That's fine. Rick Cerrone also came out to sign the ball, so I had two signatures. But who comes out of the dugout? Former 1996 great relief pitcher, Graham Lloyd. The tall Australian fellow. I wave him down. He eventually makes his way down, signs the ball. We also got Charlie Hayes. My father told Charlie that I was hoping that maybe he would celebrate like he did when he made the last out of the 96 World Series at some point during the game. And he would said, no, he wouldn't be doing that. 
So that was a little unfortunate, but it was nice to meet those guys, get their autograph, have a brief conversation with them. We didn't get any of the huge names, but it was much more relaxed as far as autographing is concerned than it was when Derek Jeter was in town and it was just a shit show of people pushing and shoving and trying to get their arms over you and under you and wherever else that you didn't want arms to be just to get his signature. So that was a great way to spend Father's Day, not only getting to hang out with my father at a baseball game. He took some pictures with his camera. I took some pictures with his camera. We'll see which ones came out better. I'm voting for myself. I've gotten a little bit better at photography than I think he gives me credit for, so we'll see. And hopefully that might be a tradition that lasts year to year if this is something that the rail riders want to keep around. But I also wanted to give my father a shout-out for some advancements that he made for my little studio here in my old childhood bedroom. My original setup is pretty solid. Got the desk, got the mixer on the desk, place for my laptop. The only problem was the microphone, this Audio-Technica ATR2100. Very solid microphone, but you can't find any boom arms for it or anything to really have it propped up nice. They just give you this like three-legged stand that you could put on the desk. Every movement that you make could get picked up on the microphone, but he had this amazing idea just to show you how innovative he is to use an old lamp that he has in his studio as an artist. He has a little spot in the house where he goes into seclusion to draw a couple nights a week. And growing up, there's always been this lamp that's on this arm that drops down. And I was always impressed by it because it has a little California raisin ornament on it. And who doesn't love the California raisins? So one day I come home from a trip and this is on my desk with the microphone perfectly placed on top of the lamp itself. The wire is slithering down the arm and goes under the desk to connect to the mixer. Beautiful setup. Now I don't have to lean over like the hunchback of Notre Dame when I'm doing my show, which is how I'm usually found sitting. And then you don't realize how much pain you're actually in until the show is over and you go to get up and go, Jesus, my back, everything. So this lamp is also illuminating my keyboard. I don't necessarily know how that's going to help me because I don't do much typing during the show. I'm also very hopeful that the palm of my hand doesn't accidentally skin the light that's in this lamp because it's probably close to 900 degrees. And if I do so, I may get a third degree burn. I'll let you know if that does happen because I'll probably edit out the screams. But anyway, since this is a sports podcast, let's talk sports. There's been a lot that's happened in the past two weeks since I've been on doing this show. I took last week off because of the scheduling conflicts with the NBA Finals. Normally, I do this show on Sunday, usually Sunday night. The Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors were playing Game 5 of the NBA Finals, and I didn't want to do a show before the game because the series was still up in the air at 2-2. I also didn't want to do a show after the game because by the time I edited it, it wouldn't really make any sense because they were playing Game 6 on Tuesday night. So I would have had to edit it on Sunday and have been up into the wee hours of the morning doing so and then make sure I put it out on Monday in order for people to hear the comments before Game 6 on Tuesday. So I just decided to wait and then Game 6 happened and then here we are. So I'm not going to get too excited as far as the major intricacies that went on during Game 5 and Game 6 and Game 4, actually, since we've last been on here, because it's been so long, you all know what's happened. 
So I'm going to throw some stats your way, going to throw some quotes your way, going to make you interested in the NBA Finals once again. Now, if you haven't already heard, the Golden State Warriors ended up beating the Cleveland Cavaliers in six games, four games to two, and win the first title for the Warriors in more than 40 years. So it's been a long time for Golden State. It's also been a long time for the city of Cleveland since those 60-whatever Browns ended up winning the Super Bowl back when Jim Brown played. Now, for a time, a lot of people said that it was Cleveland series. People had picked Cleveland before the series even started and thought they were the better team than Golden State, even though Golden State finished the year with 67 wins. The basis of their decision wasn't too poor. I mean, having the best player in the league in LeBron James could definitely help when you're going to win an NBA title. The unfortunate part for Cleveland was that their second best player, Kyrie Irving, went down with an injury in game one and wouldn't be back for the rest of the series. Still, though, people had Cleveland winning, even with it just being LeBron James' team, and he really made the case for himself when he won game two and game three basically by himself with a little help from Matthew Delvadova and Timothy Mozgov, names you probably didn't really hear of before the NBA Finals started. But with the Warriors down 2-1, just like they did when they were down 2-1 to Memphis in the previous series, they flipped a switch, turned things on, ended up taking the next three games and taking the series. It was a pretty exciting series, though, in the scheme of things. It was actually the most watched finals since 1998 when Jordan was in his last season with the Bulls and ended up beating Utah to win the second of three straight championships and leave him with six finals titles and six finals MVPs to end his career, supposedly. And it's funny because the Warriors didn't necessarily play amazing basketball. If you watch late night basketball in the Western Conference throughout the season, you've seen the Warriors put up some pretty impressive games. They have one of those offenses that when they're clicking on all cylinders, they'll just shoot the lights out. And along with their defense, there's really nothing you can do. And they would blow out teams some nights and just look basically unbeatable. We didn't really get that in the NBA Finals. They didn't really play as best as they possibly could play. And it seemed like after every game, the storyline was, well, you know, we haven't even seen them play their best basketball yet. Clay Thompson hasn't really done anything. Their role players haven't really done anything. It'll be interesting to see if they could bring everything together and we'll really see what they can do. The same thing was also being said for Cleveland, though, because with their role players, J.R. Smith wasn't showing up for games. Iman Shumpert wasn't really doing much. Timothy Mozgov had 23 points one game and then played nine minutes the following game, and the press ripped Cleveland head coach Dave Blatt for that. All the international press from Russia and wherever they were from around the world, they would not let it go that he did not play Mozgov for more than nine minutes and he had zero points. What are you doing, David Blatt? They did not let him off the hook, and it was a little uncomfortable to watch that happen. But unfortunately for Cleveland, they really never played as perfectly as they needed to play in order for them to win the remaining games against the Warriors. LeBron James did show up for every one of the games. He did play better in some than he did in others. He didn't necessarily have great second halves and great fourth quarters, but the end numbers were always still there in each of the games. The unfortunate part is his teammates just didn't help him out. All he really needed was for one other guy to have an above-average game, and that would have given Cleveland an opportunity to win, which is amazing if you think about it, because he could basically go into the locker room, look around at his guys, and say, listen, 
I'm going to put the team on our back. All you have to do is something. Score more points than you normally do. Get more rebounds than you normally do. One of you do that just one game, and we'll have an opportunity to win. Unfortunately, that didn't really happen. Game two, game three, Matthew Dellavedova came out of his little shell and shocked the world by putting together some pretty solid performances. But then once the Warriors actually decided to watch some tape on him, scout him a little bit, and take him seriously, he was a non-factor for the rest of the series. Mozgov had that great game and scored 20 plus points. Didn't really do much after that because the Cavs at times went small. Tristan Thompson was hit or miss. He had a ton of rebounds, but anyone could have rebounds against the Warriors because if there's one thing they don't really do well on the defensive end, they do not rebound the basketball on both ends of the floor, which is frustrating at times. J.R. Smith did absolutely nothing. It was actually very depressing to watch and he made a fool of himself for a couple games. He just didn't come to play. One first half, I think he had four threes, and then he didn't score for the rest of the game. His only big shining moment came in the trailing end of game six when he scored a couple quick threes to pull the Cavs within four with like 15 seconds left and give them a ray of hope, kind of like a Reggie Miller-esque performance toward the end, just bombing these threes and finally making them. And Cavs fans are probably like, really? Now you're going to make these threes when it doesn't matter anymore. So it's unfortunate for LeBron that he was basically just going down with the ship. He couldn't do anything to get his teammates to help him because when LeBron James was off the floor, J.R. Smith was 0 for 9, Della Vadova was 0 for 7, James Jones was 0 for 3, Amon Shumpert was 0 for 2. In total, the team was 0 for 21 when LeBron was not on the floor during the NBA Finals. Noticeably not on that list is Sean Marion, who did not play at all in the NBA Finals, and he actually announced the other day that he is retiring from the game of basketball after 16 seasons. I believe he was on that Mavs team in 2011 that won the NBA Finals, but he did not play a minute and probably went home and looked himself in the mirror after every game and went, Matthew Delavadova's playing over me? Yeah, that's it. I've had enough of this. But getting back to Golden State, the Warriors actually finished the year with the third most wins ever when all was said and done after the finals. And the funny part of that is, is Steve Kerr was a part of all three of those teams. You had the 95-96 Bulls going 87-13. and The following year, they went 84-17. and And then this year's team, the Warriors, went 83-20. and Pretty impressive numbers when you think about it. Now, the MVP of the league in Steph Curry struggled for the majority of the early part of the series. The first three games, he really didn't play great. As the series got later on, he was making his shots. He was putting his 30-plus point performances together. There were some points where he was going basket for basket with LeBron, which was fun to watch. And at some points, he just made Delavadova look foolish trying to defend him because there's just certain times during a game where Steph Curry is just unguardable. Finally, though, he did play like the MVP because people were ripping him early in the series for not showing up, and that was well-deserved. He did not play well at all, but he ended up at least having some above-average games as the series wore on, and he played very well in Game 6. And it was kind of a prophecy of what he said in 2009, because in November he tweeted out, Promise to all the Warrior fans, we will figure this thing out. If it's the last thing we do, we will figure it out. Now that's coming six years ago and just letting everybody know, hey, in time we'll get it. And they did. 
Now, the MVP of the finals did not go to Steph Curry. He actually did not get any of the 11 votes, which was a little surprising. I thought he might have gotten one or two because, like I said, he did have some pretty good games. But the MVP went to Andre Iguodala, who got seven out of the 11 votes, LeBron James getting the other four. He didn't necessarily put up amazing numbers, but the impact he had while he was on the floor was definitely MVP-worthy, both on the offensive and defensive side. And it was Steve Kerr who actually gave him a more advanced role starting in Game 4, putting him in the starting lineup, and he really just took over the game at some points on both ends, was a spark for them on offense, shut down LeBron James, and it was well-deserved that he got the MVP. When he was in the game, LeBron shot 38% and the Cavs were minus 55. When he was not in the game, LeBron shot 44% and the Cavs were plus 30. So it just goes to show the impact he had while being up against LeBron James. An interesting fact about him as well is that he was the first player to score 25 plus points in the NBA Finals clinching win without having a 25 point game the entire season, including the playoffs. So he didn't reach 25 points all year, drops it in game six against the Cavs. So for all the doubters, that was an MVP performance in the final game of the series. And of course, a big celebration was in order after the Warriors ended up winning Game 6 on the road in Cleveland to the dismay of Cleveland fans. Harrison Barnes on the Warriors had never tasted alcohol in his life until his team won the finals. He had some champagne. Now, I don't know how much champagne you need without ever drinking alcohol to get drunk from it, but I'm assuming he didn't go as far as that point, though it might have only taken half a bottle. I'm not sure. What was also great is Steve Kerr did his entire post-game press conference covered in champagne. He didn't change. He didn't shower. He went to the locker room, celebrated with his team, and then turned around and did the press conference covered in champagne and dripping wet. I don't think I've ever seen that from a head coach. It was amazing. Then, of course, they had the parade the other day. Draymond Green was drunk, calling out Cleveland and saying that they're not here. We're here. We won. They didn't. You know, typical Draymond Green stuff. Marshawn Lynch participated in the parade, which I found a little funny. You know, he's always calling out Oakland when he actually decides to give a quote. What was interesting about it is he probably talked more after this championship in an interview than he did for the entire week of Super Bowl media day and after the game itself. I don't know what got into him, but he was very talkative after the Warriors won the championship. I guess somebody should bring that up next time they want to get some quotes during the football season. Hey, how about them Warriors? Yeah. But of course, the major storyline that everyone wants to talk about is LeBron James. And there's some interesting things that could be said after this series regarding LeBron James. He was also the first player in NBA Finals history to lead both teams in points, assists, and rebounds for the entire series. He averaged 35.8 points, 13.3 rebounds, and 8.8 assists, almost a triple-double for the entire Finals, didn't get the MVP. Now, there's a lot of discussion about the MVP in the Finals, whether it should go to someone on the losing end of the Finals when all is said and done. The last player to do so was Jerry West, who was to about 134 finals and he never won. But he is the logo of the league, so I guess that's something. But he got the MVP one year. I think he was averaging like 42 points per game. He had an amazing series, and they gave him the MVP in a losing effort. I thought this would have been a good year to bring that back, because LeBron really played unbelievable basketball. 
there were times he didn't really look too good. Again, the box score is going to tell you something different than what your eye test might tell you in the last couple of games. Whether or not he was gassed, I mean, he has to be tired. Playing all those minutes for the entire season, it's hard when he gets to the NBA Finals. It's a long season, and even with him taking a two-week sabbatical halfway through to go down to Miami and drink some pina coladas near the beach and get his mind right, it's still a lot. But I wouldn't have had a problem with him getting the MVP over Andre Iguodala or Steph Curry because his numbers are there and as I just mentioned you're doing better than both teams combined what more do you want well you want wins you lead your team to two wins out of four eh had he won game six and forced a game seven I think he definitely would have had the MVP in his pocket now he also said some things that can stir the pot after a couple of the games in the series some interesting things to think about After game five, there was this exchange. A reporter asked LeBron, you seem to be playing a lot more comfortable this final series. There was a play I think you had a behind-the-back layup where you went up and you're making crazy threes. Do you feel a lot less pressure this finals run just because you were undermanned and you had some injuries as opposed to previous years? So he's asking LeBron if he feels pressure, more pressure than he has in the past because nobody's on his team and people got injured and this is probably the hardest he's ever played. He mean mugs the guy and comes back with, I feel confident because I'm the best player in the world. It's that simple. Okay. Well, that's not what I asked, but thanks. Seemed like that came out of nowhere, and there's been the argument that we know you're the best player in the world, but the media will let everybody know you're the best player in the world. You don't need to tell us that. He seemed to always do a decent enough job of deferring those questions and putting the team first and saying the right things. That wasn't it in that instance, and it didn't really answer the question, if you really want to get technical about it. Seemed like it was something he just wanted to get off his chest for a long time now, and we're just going to do it today. Today's the day I'm the best in the world. Yeah, we know. It's all right. This might not be the best time to say that, though. Then after game six, a reporter asked him a question about would he rather just have lost and not even made the playoffs instead of getting to the finals and losing? And he said he wondered if it was worth it to miss the playoffs entirely as opposed to making it to the finals and then lose. Now, you have to keep in mind that that's just raw emotion after just losing in the NBA Finals and losing in the Finals for the fourth time in your career. It's like if you were playing baseball and you were pitching a perfect game and the last pitch ended up being a walk-off home run and you lose the game one nothing, Or you're in a championship game, you lose on a game-winning basket. When the game's over, you always think, would it have been better to just get blown out so we didn't have to battle and have this game go either way and then end up coming on the losing end and suffering a heartbreaking loss? In theory, yes. But if you really ask an athlete, they're going to tell you that they'd rather have the opportunity to win and be in that position like LeBron was and I think if you ask him that even the day after he would have said well no I obviously want to be in the finals every year I could just see Kobe Bryant though sitting in his recliner with his legs up making sure his knees and his Achilles are good just scoffing to himself he would never say something like that but like I said raw emotion after the game I don't think he could put too much into it obviously he would rather be in the finals 
And then to stir the pot even further, a couple days after the finals, ESPN's Mark Stein wrote a piece talking about LeBron's relationship with Cleveland head coach David Blatt, who came into the league this year as a rookie, was previously coaching in Europe, has a pretty good record overseas, never played in the NBA, however, and people oftentimes thought that he wasn't really doing much for the team. Well, the piece was called LeBron's Handling of Blatt Unbecoming, and to quote Mark Stein, We likewise saw LeBron emasculate Blatt in ways that are simply unbecoming of a player of James's legend-in-the-making stature. I saw it from close range in my role as sideline reporter through the finals for ESPN Radio. James essentially called timeouts and made substitutions. He openly barked at Blatt after decisions he didn't like. He huddled frequently with Tyron Lue, who's Cleveland's assistant coach, often looking at anyone other than Blatt. There was James, in one instance I witnessed right behind the bench, shaking his head vociferously in protest after one play Blatt drew up in the third quarter of Game 5, amounting to the loudest nonverbal scolding you could imagine, which forced Blatt, in front of his whole team, to wipe the board clean and draw up something else. He goes on to say, I understand James had no input in Blatt's hiring and had to roll with him in less than ideal circumstances, but it struck me as a rather unflattering look for an all-time great no matter how inept he might think the coach is. How is any fellow Cavalier going to treat Blatt with something resembling reverence when James treats him like a bench ornament in plain view? How can James publicly laud his own leadership as he so often does when setting that sort of tone? He also mentioned that Brian Windhorse, who works with ESPN, one of his colleagues who's been covering LeBron James since high school and is probably hoping that LeBron will play another 15 years so he'll still have a job. Windhorse went on the SVP and Rosillo show and said LeBron wouldn't mind having Blatt coming back because, quote, he likes having Blatt to kick around. Now, this does make for an interesting discussion because we know that LeBron didn't handpick David Blatt to be his coach. But when has that necessarily been a thing? Most recently, I guess you could look at Kobe Bryant when they fired Mike Brown and brought in Mike D'Antoni coming over from the Phoenix Suns as a way to run his fast-paced offense and really turn things around for L.A. Kobe wasn't happy with this, and he was not consulted on the decision, which he also was not happy about. He wanted Phil Jackson back, but Phil Jackson was basically shafted by Lakers brass and ended up going to the New York Knicks to work as a general manager-esque position there and, so far, run them into the ground. He did, however, get rid of J.R. Smith and Amon Shumpert for a bag of Lay's potato chips, not even the wavy ones, and that was a good decision because we saw the true colors of both those players in the finals. But I digress. So far for LeBron, played under Mike Brown in Cleveland for the first go-around. Ends up going to Miami under Eric Spolstra. Doesn't really like him too much. Supposedly respects him. They had some moments. One game in the finals, they like bumped shoulders during a timeout. Everybody went, ooh, trouble in paradise. But he's kind of always wanted to be able to pick his own coach. And I think one of the reasons he went to Cleveland was because Cleveland's owner, Dan Gilbert, doesn't really care what LeBron wants to do. He will bend his knee for the king. 
He's just happy that he came back to Cleveland. Now, Pat Riley, on the other hand, running the Miami Heat, he wants things done his way, and he's not just going to bend down and kiss LeBron's ring when he wants something done unless both parties can agree to it. So it will be interesting to see whether or not LeBron wants David Blatt out of town and who's going to stop him from doing so. But who are they going to bring in? Are you going to honestly put Tyron Lue whose most famous moment as a basketball player was getting stepped over by Allen Iverson in Game 1 of the Finals after Iverson crossed him up and nailed a three in his face and in front of the Lakers bench. He's the guy you want as your coach? I mean, you'll be able to kick him around too. Lord knows you can cross his ass up and do the exact same thing if you really wanted to during practice. Do it during the game too, right when he has the clipboard in his hand. Tyron, stand up. Let me show you something. But there's only a couple coaches that I can think of that players have kind of formed and molded to during their careers. One, of course, is Phil Jackson, who had the privilege of coaching both Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant and did a great job of bringing in all the role players around them to successfully win championships. And by championships, I mean 11 championships. I mean, he did have the best player in the world at two separate occasions of coaching basketball, but he also did a great job of coaching them. They respected him, they listened to him, and he was able to bring these teams together and make dynasties in two separate occasions, and that's just not something you normally see. The other coach who has basically done that same thing is Greg Popovich over with the San Antonio Spurs, molding the likes of Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili, a little bit of David Robinson. They love playing for him. They respect him. He's an amazing head coach. But you're not going to get Greg Popovich to go to Cleveland. You're not going to get Phil Jackson to leave the Knicks, though he should leave on his own accord anyway. I mean, the only other great coach out there right now without a job is, I guess, Tom Thibodeau, the former Chicago Bulls head coach. The unfortunate part for that is he'll run the whole team into the ground, and they don't have the people to do that right now. I mean, maybe if he was the coach in the finals, he would have at least went to the bench a little bit more and threw those guys in, let Marion play a couple minutes, throw in Kendrick Perkins to follow some guys and send them to the bench. Who knows what could happen? But I think that's your best bet if you want to go that route. Tom Thibodeau over Tyron Lu. But I don't know. I mean, you got to think that the pride and dignity of David Blatt took a little bit of a hit. He's a little hurt. He has to be. Do you want to come back to this? He's a prideful coach. Why would you want to be on a team where no one respects you? I mean, game six, he's giving his hoorah speech during halftime. And J.R. Smith has his head in his hands, just looking like he's sitting through a college course that he only signed up for because he needed to get an elective out of the way and he does not want to be there. He's just there to get the credits and get the hell out of there. He's not listening to what you're saying. He's got enough people to do the work for him because he's on the basketball team. He's got tutors. He's got advisors. He's got kids that he's paying off. He'll be fine. That's what he looks like during halftime of game six. Disinterested. I mean, David Blatt isn't necessarily great during his speeches, whether it be timeouts, halftime. He just gives you the same motivational quotes over and over again. We're a good basketball team. Just go out there and play hard. Play good basketball and we'll win. You could just get a book out and have everybody pass it around to a motivational quote and read that, and that's David Blatt's timeouts. But that'll be interesting to see, and that's definitely going to be a story point throughout the rest of the offseason. What's Cleveland going to do with their head coaching position? What's Kevin Love going to do? Is he going to opt out of his contract and go to another team? Is LeBron going to opt out of his, come back to Cleveland, or go elsewhere? The stories will never end in the offseason. There'll be more than enough LeBron, and there's already been more than enough LeBron on this podcast, so we're going to move on. The other night, Mark Scherzer for the Washington Nationals 
threw a no-hitter against the Miami Marlins right after he threw a one-hitter the previous start before that. He actually had a perfect game going into the ninth inning. He got two outs. He got to the 27th batter and got two strikes on the man. A pinch hitter named Jose Tabata. You know Jose? I don't either. Anyway, two strikes on Jose. Third pitch, slider. Gets away from him. It's a little inside. Jose doesn't try to get out of the way. He dips his shoulder down, so he gets hit in the elbow pad and takes first base because of it. Next batter flies out. Mark Scherzer gets a no-hitter instead of a perfect game. What a way to lose it, man. Last batter, you're amped up. Pitch gets a little bit away from you, and he could have got out of the way from it, but he was like, forget this guy. I am ruining his bid for a perfect game, and he takes one for the team. Ouch. Probably one of the worst lost perfect games I've seen, and I think that would make it three. The first one was Mike Mussina in Fenway Park to throw a perfect game in Fenway Park. Nothing would be better. Two outs, ninth inning, Carl Everett comes up to the plate. You remember Carl Everett? He was a switch hitter. That's about all I got for you. Interesting stance on both sides of the plate as well. Anyway, he singles to center, ruins the perfect game, ruins the no-hitter, ruins a great moment in Yankees history. The last wrecked perfect game was like 2010? Well, it's been a long time. Armando Galarraga, pitching for the Detroit Tigers, one out away from a perfect game, gets a ground ball, covers first base, the runner appears to be out, a perfect game appears to be in his grasp. Except the first base umpire, Jim Joyce, calls the runner safe and he was clearly out now this was of course before the days of major league baseball instant replay had that been in place the perfect game would have stood a great moment for armando unfortunately doesn't happen loses the perfect game on a blown call which i think dwarfs losing the perfect game on a hit by pitch because there's nothing you could do about a blown call the hit by pitch you could at least say all right the ball got away from me what can you do the blown call you made the out the game should be over no unfortunately for armando i guess he never recovered because shortly after that he was traded to somebody and then he was demoted to triple a and now i don't even know if he's in any form of league anymore so that would have been his one shining moment and it never happened but in those two games for scherzer 18 innings pitch one hit, zero runs, 26 Ks, one walk. And he's retired 54 of his last 57 batters faced. That's absolutely amazing. Could be one of the best back-to-back starts you'll ever see. And especially in this day and age with the way hitters can be on some teams. What's also interesting about Scherzer is he's a guy that didn't really become a quote-unquote ace until he was like 29. Not too many pitchers have that happen where they work their way through the ranks and don't really show the world what they're capable of until they're old. Older, I should say. Cliff Lee comes to mind. R.A. Dickey comes to mind, the knuckleballer. Bartolo Colon now just throwing fastballs at people, pitching well for the Mets. Well, he was not too great now, but that's for another day. The last thing to quickly get into is golf because the U.S. Open just wrapped up tonight. And I haven't really been watching any of this because I've been carrying on living my life and have much better things to do than to watch people play golf. But a couple of the things I heard before the final day was that the course was basically a piece of shit. And after watching a couple holes to end the night out here, I couldn't agree more. The Chambers Bay course up in Seattle 
horrifying looking. The greens were all brown. I mean, you'd shoot a putt and it just goes on for days and days. Hard greens, hard fairways. For any local people around here, it's probably worse off than the Leahy Family Fun Park miniature golf course is. And for anybody that's ever mini-golfed at Leahy, since it's basically the only game in town, you know how poor of a course it must be. Leahy's got all these fountains and waterfalls, but they don't actually have water flowing through them. So if you have to shoot the ball down a ramp and into the waterfall to have the water trickle it into the hole, you basically just have to go and kick it down yourself because there's no water. The greens are very poor. They haven't been replaced in years. You could three-putt from five feet away, much like Dustin Johnson did to end the U.S. Open. He got on the green in two, and he ended up three-putting. He had the opportunity to win on a putt and then tie on a putt that would have forced an 18-hole playoff tomorrow, Monday, but he missed both. And Jordan Spieth, the 21-year-old phenom who won the Masters, wins the first two majors of the year. Ended up shooting five under for the tournament, finished one under for the final day. He birdied the last hole to give himself that opportunity and did a great job. Very impressive. What was different for this particular tournament this u.s open is that it was on fox and fox decided to make this all prime time viewing so obviously it's in the west coast you got the time differential but you're watching the final hole of the u.s open at like 11 o'clock at night really i mean you're used to watching this in the afternoon that's what's always been great about golf sunday afternoon you plop in front of the tv You get ready to go and then you know it's seven or eight you go to the bar and get drunk you go to bed not tonight. Fox was also criticized for some of the things that they were doing visually with their graphics. Very poorly run for the four days. At one point, they had a walk tracker, basically, on Jason Day, who was doing pretty well in the tournament. He suffers from vertigo, and there were a couple times during the tournament where he just fell over from vertigo and was struggling physically to get through, but was still managing to shoot decent rounds. At one point, he's walking on the final day, and they just have the screen split of the action in one screen and him walking in the other, like just waiting for him to just fall down so they could start reciting one of the stations where the Lord falls for the first time. Well, that would have been the second time that he fell. We adore you, O Christ, and we praise you. So unfortunately for Fox, he didn't go down, but they were really getting shellacked on social media for just doing a crappy job with golf. And I mean, I guess that's to be expected. You think of Fox, you think football, World Series baseball. What are you doing putting golf on? And what are you doing putting it on in prime time? Nobody wants to watch golf at 10 o'clock at night in the East Coast, please. That's going to do it for this week. You can listen to more episodes of The Bridge at www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me at that same handle on Twitter, at London Bridge. You can subscribe to The Bridge on iTunes through my website so you can listen to this podcast whenever you like, whether it be on your trips to and from work or in your leisure time when you should probably be doing something else. I know, I know, we didn't get to A-Rod, but there's a lot to talk about. His 3,000 hit, the guy that's keeping the ball, should he be in Monument Park for the Yankees? We'll get into all that next week and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.